Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Inspired, the podcast where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs and innovators who are changing the game in their respective industries. I'm your host, Jonathan Cohen. Before we dive into it, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and follow us on Spotify so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes and content coming your way. You know, sometimes in the world of podcasting, we encounter unexpected challenges, and today was unfortunately one of those days. The audio on my end had a few hiccups during the interview with our awesome guest, Cash Hasworth. I want to assure you that we've done our best to salvage the conversation as it's simply too valuable to let slip away. Now, let me tell you why this episode is a must listen. Cash is an author behind his new book, Selling Keeps You Broke. His expertise has challenged conventional wisdom and his story is very compelling. So despite the minor audio issues, the essence of what Cash has to say and the power of his ideas remain intact. In this episode, you'll see how his journey came through, his unshakable belief in his potential, and how people can up their sales game. All right, please join me in welcoming to the show, Mr. Cash Hasworth. Today I'm here with an extremely unique guest, someone who brings a plethora of skills and talents to the table, someone who's disrupting the sales industry. Please welcome to the show the author of Selling Keeps You Broke, Mr. Cash Hasworth. How are you today, sir? What's up, brother, man? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm well, man. It's a pleasure to have you. We were just hopping on the mic before the show, getting to know each other a bit, and I could say it's pretty cool, everything that you're up to from how you got to where you are, a bit of your background, unconventional to say the least. Nonetheless, if you're making an impact, then I'm hyped to ask you a few questions and educate the audience about what you're up to. Man, I'm incredibly excited for the opportunity and let's get into it. I want to start by asking, where are you from, man? Martinsville, Virginia, actually. Small town, probably never heard of it. Where Southern, you're based now? Southern Virginia. Yeah, well... When I first started out in my career, I was scaling up a chain of wireless stores and it just made more sense to me to be more centralized to all the locations as we built them out. So I actually transitioned to Charlottesville, was in Charlottesville for a little while and then moved a couple hours south down in Lynchburg, Virginia, where Liberty University, if you're familiar with Liberty. Where did you go to school? So, man, I didn't even complete high school. I struggle to make it through 10th grade. Just spirit of transparency, like my highest academic achievement is a prison issue GED from Buckingham Correctional Center at age 17. Mm-hmm. Want to get into it? That's, that's where it is. That's what I come from. So I want to know, I'm actually extremely curious, how does one earn a GED while they're imprisoned? And if you don't mind my asking, how'd you end up there? You know, when... Growing up in the environment that I grew up in, I felt like I didn't have the right information and the information that I did have in that environment kind of shaped who I was at that point. And it just led to aggressive behaviors, surrounding yourself with the wrong people. And it's just, it's what I was exposed to. I heard Eric Thomas say something the other day, if you follow Eric, and he said, um, you know, people aren't smart, they're exposed. And I think that it works both ways, right? Our reality is a reflection of our thoughts and our thoughts are a reflection of what we consume. What you consume will consume you for better or for worse. It works in both directions. So it's just, it was the information that I was exposed to and it, it just shaped who I was at that point. And 
went through a ton of adversity, lost some really good people that was family and and brothers to me. And after that reset around age 16, 17, when I first came home, I knew that I had to escape that environment. I didn't want to be in that kind of lifestyle anymore because I know what it would ultimately lead to. And, you know, that led to a, a deep conversation with God and sobbing tears and simply just begging him to expose me to the right people to help me breathe life into the life that I wanted to live. And, uh, you know, from there, people started showing up. After you kind of had that epiphany moment, what were the next steps that started to put you on a path that you wanted to lean into? And pardon me saying I don't want to speak on your behalf, but be proud of. Yeah, so... One of my one of my close friends at the time, he had shared that there was this local program around Martinsville. It was a workforce career center, and they were offering a program to at-risk youth. So if you had low-income home, if you had any kind of criminal record, if you had any kind of barrier, right, as an adolescent, you would automatically qualify for the program. And what they did is they would take at-risk youth and they would place them at job sites. And it was a federally funded program, so they would essentially write the checks so that way people could gain real-life experience. So he shared that opportunity with me. And when I went through the program, initially they have like mock interviews and they'll go through and see, just get a feel for your personality and your skill set and what aligns best with you and your personality. And they place you from there. So when I initially went through the program, they actually wanted me to work at Workforce Career Center, which at the time they hadn't had anyone that actually worked at Workforce Career Center that was a part of the program. But, you know, they were trying to create like a youth liaison sort of position where I would go out to the schools and talk to the kids and just kind of be a, a voice for the adversity infused kind of at risk kids to just spread my message and, and my background and where I was headed. That was the kickstart of where people started showing up is that first opportunity. That program lasted I think it was designed to last like three months and they kept on extending it out because they were trying to hire me on full time. And at the time, I don't want to say who was funding the program, but they kept on pitching to the idea to corporate to create this this position for me. And then, you know, after they had extended it out for another three plus months and I'm in the program now for six, eight months, just trying to gain experience because initially they said, Hey, he doesn't have any experience. We can't create the position for him. So they kept extending it out to overcome that excuse. And they eventually opened up a little more. I was like, look, we can't hire him because he's a felon. And, you know, I thought it was a little hypocritical to say, Hey, look, you know, we created this program for at risk kids, but we won't hire them ourselves. But uh, everyone that I worked with inside of workforce at that office was just insanely helpful. They helped me secure an opportunity after that one. And that's what led me to get into the wireless industry. And I got into the wireless industry as a part-time sales rep working in this small, shabby little kiosk inside of Liberty Fair Mall in Martinsville, Virginia. And, you know, my career just exploded from there. I'm sure there's a lot of lessons that you could take just from everything that you share alone and that the audience has a lot to garner from it. It's not just what 
led to the imprisonment in the first place? Uh, yeah. So, man, my pops was a huge influence on me. You know, he's brought a ton of value into, into my life and helped shape a lot of core values that transferred over very well into the corporate space. But he was also a notorious drug dealer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the time he was, he was, he had a very strong and large presence in, in that kind of lifestyle. You know, I've, I've, I've gone through everything I've had, you know, people kicking in the doors to rob us when we weren't there. I've had, you know, the door kicked in at a state level, at a federal level. And this is all when I was like 14, 15. And, you know, I was right there beside of them selling drugs. And, you know, he went away for what, four years, six years, something like that. And at the time, you know, my mother, she didn't, she didn't, she didn't get a high school diploma either. Very low education and a lot of low wage positions that she had had. And, you know, she has some health issues and not making an excuse for, you know, me stepping up to the plate and getting into the whole drug world by any means. But that's, again, that's what I was exposed to. And here I was at, you know, 14, 15 years old with my pops, you know, long, no longer there by my side. And just having his strong presence and him not being there with me, it felt like I had such big shoes to fill in order to be successful in, in that space, to be able to provide for my family and to be able to pay the bills. It just led to if anyone questioned me or challenged me because of my age or, or whatever, I, I was just very aggressive. And uh, one opportunity kind of presented itself for me to, you know, demand respect. And uh, one of my, one of my close friends, he had gotten into an altercation with, with this, this, um, this guy and he had threatened his life and a ton of crazy stuff took place. But he, and he said, Hey, gosh, got to go to this guy's house. And he wanted me to come pick him up. So naturally I did. And when we showed up, we were, it was in a trailer park and we parked like two trailer lengths from where this guy was. And he started walking towards the car, lifted his shirt up as if he was, you know, about to grab a gun or something. And, you know, me just being in that kind of environment, my first instinct was to just let loose. So, you know, I ended up shooting like five, six times, grazed him in the arm. So I had a, at the time, I, I believe it was what, like five felonies that came out of that and ended up getting three dropped. They reduced the other two to like unlawful wounding and unlawful shooting. And I ended up getting two years. They tried me as an adult. So I did go to, you know, an adult facilities or prison at like 16, 17. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> I think when I look back, my experience as a prosecutor and, you know, I look at having dealt with juveniles, all the different aspects that go along with having that kind of responsibility. But, like there's a human on the other side. There's circumstances on the other side and recognizing the times when to have empathy, how to go doing the right thing. And it's something that we've talked a bit of on this podcast about where the right thing comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. How do you find that your experience after being incarcerated 
achieving a GED and then getting a full-time job, despite all the odds being stacked against you and you having this immense intention of trying to better yourself, shaped you into the professional that you are today. I think that growing up in an intense environment was the best thing that ever happened to me, right? I think going to prison was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, being robbed, the shootouts, the prison fights, all the chaos at that age, it was hands down the best thing that ever happened to me. The exposure to that intensity, it will either breed fear and consume you or it'll desensitize you to where you're now the strongest person in the room. And, you know, when you go from that intensity to the corporate space, there's no amount of, I guess, punishment or loss or failure that can drop below the intensity level that you've already set the benchmark for. Right. And it's why I've never been intimidated by anyone in the corporate space. Let me ask you, just because I'm curious, we're obviously going to get into your skill set, but are there elements of insecurity or frustrations that kind of came along with the fact that, you know, we all own our past, but at the same time, like, we got to shed our past in order for us to be able to move forward, right? So, like, if it ever factors in now when you meet a new client, customer, anything like that, how do you go about compartmentalizing or continuing to perform when something like this comes up? I've ran from this story my entire career. I didn't until I started working for myself. I did not put it out there because I just felt that I would be judged by everyone and it would limit my opportunities to go out and, and truly provide for my family. So I didn't jeopardize it. And I've always ran from that story. So up until the last year or so is really when I've been the most open about it and really started to share my story. And it's when people really start to take notice and they absolutely love it. People hearing the story like I, I don't know why I didn't run from it and, and just let that, you know, feel like I couldn't take advantage of that story because there's people that's in my circumstance or was in my circumstance that can learn from the experiences and say, hey, you know, if, if cash came from X, Y and Z, surely I can overcome this. Right. So I've just now started to really embrace the story and, and get it out there. But, you know, prior, no one really knew my background because I made it a goal of mine to do a completely turn a complete 360 on you know my personality, how I speak. Right. Literally everything in order to run from what initially was at age 16, 17, 18, right, to what I am now. So it's just now getting out there. But, uh, yeah, it, it's never been a deterrent for me. I've never felt any kind of insecurities, right, because of that that background. Now, I, I take that back. You know, I would say there, on occasion there's been times where I felt like there was something that was missing like everybody knew something that I didn't know because they went to college and you just got to bulldoze your way through it. Right. We all go through. I mean, look, people that go to college and get master's degrees or whatever degree, there's it, there's nothing like real world experience. 
And me living through that and starting out in the wireless industry with a great mentor that helped me gain so much experience when it comes to communication, when it comes to accountability, when it comes to sales and leadership and, and marketing and, you know, all the skill sets that you really need to really thrive in any kind of space. I realize that I can't let any kind of, you know, degree breed a sense of insecurity in me because the experience that I have is insanely more valuable than any kind of academic degree could ever amount to. It's funny that you say that because first off, I couldn't agree with you more. The context that it comes from is that I actually have three degrees, two of them being graduate. So in public service, two different countries, and the value and exposure achieved and received through my real world experience is not even comparable to what exists relative to the academic classroom and theory but something else and you know i was going to say this for the end but as we're continuing to get to know you and the audience is getting to know you you run an organization in touch for inmates it's actually a for-profit when i was first starting out in my career well This is, I'd been in my career for a good amount of time. And at this point, this is back in my wireless days. And, you know, I'd catapulted to VP of sales. And at the time we had a thriving 28 location franchise for Intellos and was doing really well. And the same guy that I, you know, got wrapped up in, in all that mess when I was a kid and ended up doing two years is the same guy that he got out because they tried both of us, right? They convicted both of us. He got two years as well, but he got out and just got back on the same BS. He ended up getting locked up again. Feds picked him up and he ended up doing like 10 years. And he was seeing my journey in real time because we, you know, chatted all the time. So he was seeing what I was able to 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 take from our experiences as an adolescent and, and you know, catapult to the forefront of, of the industry and, and the wireless industry. And he was sick of his lifestyle and he wanted what, what he saw that I was going out and achieving. And I told him it's simply a matter of, you got to start changing the information that you consume. Like you wanted to be feared and respected and, you know, at the leader in this respective space, guess what? It materialized. It happened. The same exact thing can work in the opposite direction. So, you know, we we started brainstorming and I said, I'm going to show you how this works. So we started brainstorming on an idea. And he said at the time, you know, there was guys that were creating these pen pal kind of sites and charging inmates for them like 50, 70 bucks to create a profile. And I say, okay, well, let's take this single idea and just simply run with it. And that's where in touch for inmates was truly birthed from me trying to show him how we can breathe life into whatever the mind can create. And so that's really where it started from. But when we got into it and my partner helped build out the platform and initially we were, you know, following the same business model that everyone else was. It's just, Everyone else's looked like somebody from Craigslist had created the website for like 20 bucks and it was just 
god awful. So we knew me having an appreciation for design and, and loving design myself. I knew that I could build out a platform that just visually was light years ahead of anything in that space and that naturally would would attract people if we marketed it well. So initially that's what we were doing and um you know I I didn't feel right charging inmates and monetizing it right revolving the business model around charging inmates that already have a financial strain. So forget how the idea came to me, but got the crazy idea to, you know, we'll figure out the monetization later. Let's just blow this thing up as, as, as large as we can and give it to inmates for free. So actually got, we got with Liberty university and we sent out like 5,000. I sit down and, and collected a, a list of penitentiaries from here to California. And we, we sent out a 5,000 brochure distribution campaign to, and we touched nearly every facility in the U S and it just spread like wildfire because it was free. So we started creating campaign or profiles were being created just insanely fast every day. And, and, um, it, it took off. And that's one thing that led to me being featured on, on the doctor's TV show. They came across the site and, and just saw the popularity with it. And, and, invited me out. So I flew out to, to join the panel there and discussing in touch for inmates. So that's kind of the story behind that. And the way that we monetize it is it's still free to the inmate, right? We flip the business model on its head in that space by offering it free to inmates. And then we just charge the viewer, the free citizen on the outside, just a few dollars to unlock the profile. So that way they gain access to the contact information. That is by far the most unique interactive approach I've ever heard to having <laughs> the outside world engage with people who are incarcerated in an effort to build communication, rapport and empathy and understanding. So I mean, you on the mission, I think it's extremely noble. And, you know, a lot of people think that this, the platform is purely, you know, relationship based. And I think that's what that's why the doctor's TV show actually invited me out because they were doing an episode on women that were writing and falling in love with with inmates and how they discovered these inmates. And one of them was through in touch for inmates. But, you know, surprisingly, you know, that, there's a good portion of people that that come to the platform to develop relationships with inmates, but you have so many people, you have religious organizations that want to reach out and, and be of service to inmates and just give them the right information and pray for them and that sort of thing. You have people that are in the military that's overseas that just want someone to vent to or whatever the case may be. And so there's a diverse audience there for, for in touch for inmates. It's not just to facilitate relationships between inmates and, and free citizens to, to have a romantic relationship. And another interesting element about your background is that in addition to these missions, these efforts, and your particular skill set, is that you're also an author. Yep. The author of Selling Keeps You Broke. What does that mean? <laughs> Great question. The subtitle of the book is A Holistic Approach to Disruptive Sales Performance to Earn Big. And 
the concept behind the title of the book, Selling Keeps You Broke, first of all, selling and sales is two different things, right? If, if you're closing deals, obviously it's not going to keep you broke. But the idea is when people get into sales, if, if you and I were to have a conversation about just from a legal perspective, given your background, who's going who's gonna to provide the most level of, of expertise between you and I? Probably you, right? So people think of sales in terms of something that you do, but I look at it as more of, you know, it's just who you are, right? It's your experience, it's your knowledge, it's your wisdom, right? And the challenge is if you were to obsess over trying to pitch yourself and sell whatever it is you're selling, you would probably end up at this place where you're just oozing just cheesy, salesy stuff out of your pores. That's what happens when people obsess over selling. Uh, and selling is simple, right? It's it's super simple. It's just transferring confidence from one person to the other. That's it. And between you and I, from a legal perspective, you're obviously going to be able to instill a ton more confidence in the person that you're speaking to than I can. So with, instead of obsessing over this idea of selling and making it more complicated than it needs to be, your time, your energy, your efforts needs to be applied towards three other roles that are more critical than trying to op continually optimize your sales pitch. And those three roles that you have to embody is what I call the, the triple C path to victory. It's comprised of the creator, the closer, and the care champ. And I can dive in a little more on those if, if you want me to. We're going to take them one at a time, but I want to ask, how did you come up with this framework? Where did the idea for the book come from? And how did you identify this particular framework for sales techniques and feeding that bottom line? I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think a lot of, a lot of the frameworks that are in the book or when we take a look at the creator, the closer and the care champ, it's, it's things that I was just doing naturally as a salesperson to experience the success that I've had, but you can't scale that without giving it a label. So it was just a matter of sitting down and, and, you know, coming up with something that that's catchy because you have to instill those same best practices in your team, especially if you're going to go out and build, you know, an aggressive sales team that's great at what they do. You got to figure out how you can just dumb it down and, and be able to train on it. So that's simply what it was, is we take a look at some of the, the frameworks. One of the most powerful frameworks in the book is what I call the evoke method or the evoke framework spelled E-V-O-C, but evoke stands for extract, validate, overcome, and close, right? You extract the reservation, you validate it, you overcome it, right? Now that you've extracted that reservation, they're essentially saying, hey, look, if you can overcome this, you got me. Once you overcome it, you ask for the business done deal, right? I've always done that when, especially in this, in the solar game where it's more of a one sit kind of close, I've always done it just naturally 
But again, when it comes to instilling these same best practices into someone, it's much easier for someone to remember what to do when you give it a, a cute and clever, clever label. So then let's take them one at a time. Sure. Why don't we start with the first one? The creator. Yeah. So the creator is, the creator says having a great product means nothing if nobody knows about it. As the creator, you are single-handedly responsible for creating the interest and the excitement for your product or service, not the marketing department, not your employer, not your niece or nephew that you delegated the task to you. You are the ambassador. You are the go-getter. It is your responsibility to create the interest and the excitement. Now, for clarification, that doesn't mean that you don't take advantage of the skill set that the marketing department has. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't delegate, right? What I'm saying is they are not your excuse when results fall short. It is your responsibility of the marketing department. If you're just an employee that just came into an organization and you've only been there for a month, right? And you see a growth opportunity for the marketing team, or, you know, you're going to appointments or calling these leads or whatever the case may be, and you see growth opportunities in it, it's your job to go to the marketing department and say, hey, and, and just provide some feedback or recommend solutions to optimize it to where, you know, it, they can create opportunities for you better. Because number one, you're going to gain favor by having a solutions oriented kind of approach to it. So they're going to appreciate the feedback. But number two, it's obviously healthier for the organization to take that feedback seriously because you're you're a new employee that's coming in from whatever kind of experience you had and and you know just want to see the the company win and you want to see yourself win as well so you can sustain you know a decent level of performance in that position uh, so that's how you can hold other folks accountable that are in the position if you feel like you're kind of handicapped right by the marketing department and you feel like it's not your responsibility, it most certainly is your responsibility as the creator. Because at the end of the day, that employer, right, If especially if you're in a commission-only position and you're not getting any kind of bi-weekly check or, or whatever the case may be, they're not going to pay your bills. Guess who's got to pay your bills? You do. You were the creator of your own opportunities and making sure that those opportunities are created and maximized. So that's kind of the concept behind that, that creator role is just it taking sounds, ownership. It sounds like it's born out of accountability. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Most like, certainly. It's all, it's all who's going to pay your bills, where does it stem from? It's extreme ownership. It's recognizing this isn't on me. Use them as excuses. Blame my mom. Talk about the resources. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what opportunities are you going to create for yourself? And that Most certainly. That leads into the closer. Yeah, yeah. And before we move forward, though, I think, you know, if, if the listeners are looking for, like, actionable content from the creator role, I have what I call the 100-shot shakeup. So in my wireless days, when I had a, a new employee and I was training them on, on sales, a lot of our locations were in malls. So we would have these kiosks or inline spaces in a mall. And, you know, I would recruit people that I hated recruiting salespeople. It was it was I had the best experience recruiting people that did not come from, you know, a sales background because, you know, typically what you get not saying it's always the case. Obviously, you got a ton of studs out there. But, you know, what happens 
uh, is, you know, veteran salespeople come in and, and they, they know it all. They're, they're stuck in their ways. They're not open to anything new for the most part. I'm not saying everyone is like that, but you take someone that's, that's brand new and, and eager and has got a family to feed, you know, they're going to listen to what you got to say. And me climbing the ranks to get to where I was in, in the wireless space, I knew what I was doing and I did it really well. So having someone that's receptive to the best practices to go out and create your own opportunities is immense. So I would say for the, the, the hundred shot shakeup, what I used to do is they had to speak to a hundred people um, a day to just create new opportunities. When, now a hundred people is not a ton of people when you're in a mall and you constantly have three, four people walking by you every few seconds. So it's, it's easy to do, but it's also easy not to do. <laughs> so, you know, you just got to throw people out there and, and say, Hey, look, here's the script. This is what you're going to do. I don't care how uncomfortable it is, right? You got to speak to these people in this format. Just get out there and do it. You have to create just this thick armadillo skin for rejection, right? You have to get so used to rejection because when we talk about transferring confidence, if you close an opportunity today, you know, you feel like you're on top of the world, but then you go through and you get four, five, six, 10, 20 no's, unless you've developed that thick skin for rejection, you're going to lose enthusiasm. You're going to lose confidence going into those next opportunities. So you have to develop just a thick skin for rejection and just crave it because the key to it all is just going to that next opportunity without a loss of enthusiasm and confidence. It's like callousing the mind and the ego through just volume, like these reps. You're most Taking over an answer, but also how to get around as necessary. So this immense amount of volume that you're exposed to where you could kind of learn to take it on the chin where yep. someone's going to say no, well, how many renditions of no can you really be exposed to in a confined period of time where you could start to kind of get over it? And I love that metaphor of armadillo-based skin where all of a sudden things aren't going to affect you the same way. Like Most for certainly. me, when I think about my exposure to rejection, prosecuted domestic violence cases, but before that, where obviously, you know, 80% of those cases get dismissed because you don't have a cooperative victim. But yep. then before that, law school, college, over 30 rejections. Like at some point, like you just stop having an ego at things. Yep. It allows you to kind of get around that nature of this is in my way, but I'm just going to continue and persist yep. regardless, yep. which leads to the closing aspect. Can you enlighten the audience about what the closer is? In yeah, so the closer is pretty cool. Right. You don't get paid for selling the idea. You get paid for closing it. Right. And the closer adopts what you call the CEC mentality. Close every customer. Now, obviously, you know, you, you're not going to close every single customer that you interact with, but you have to have that fierce kind of mindset that you are because you have to exhaust every resource, every angle, every option that is at your disposal in order to really breathe life into that opportunity and close it down. And the single best productivity hack that I could give you for the closer is what I call success amnesia. And this is 
just speaking from experience, like being in the trenches every day, running appointments, you have to, after every win, after every victory, after every closed deal, I don't care if you just made $20,000 from the last appointment three hours ago, you have to go into that next opportunity as if, as if that deal is going to cancel, as if you're back to zero, as if you're three months behind on your rent and you cannot afford milk for your two-year-old toddler. Like that is the mentality, literally, I kid you not. I don't say that to be cute or add fluff to the call by any means. That is literally the the mental game that I would play with myself in order to go into that next opportunity with the same vigor, with the same enthusiasm, with the same, I got to make this happen. There is no other option. It's like a scarce mindset, but at the same time, there's a sense of urgency. Most certainly. You have to create for yourself. How do you, how do you develop that mindset? You know, it's, you got to give a damn, first of all, <laughs> you know, I, I can't want it for you more than you want it for you. So it, it's for me, it's just been natural. You know, I want to win. I got a big family and I got to provide for them. So number one, you have to figure out what your why is. I think that's the most critical element. And um, once you once you can articulate that why, write it down, recite it, memorize it. You know, you got to burn it so deeply into your your brain that you got smoke pouring out of your ears. You need that why to completely dismantle and dissolve the thoughts and the behaviors and the habits that are not conducive to get into where you need to be. So that's that's the biggest thing for me. And, you know, having a family of five, that's all the why I need. I got to I got to find a way or I got to make it. Then how does that lead us into final element of this? three-part framework, the care champ. Yeah. So the care champ, the care champ is really designed to keep the creator and the closer in check, to make sure that there's quality, to make sure that there's integrity, to make sure that there's an intense focus on providing an unparalleled customer experience, right? Because I get that the close every customer kind of fierce mindset seems aggressive, but the closer, if if you're at the top of your game and you're a disruptive sales leader that closes at a extremely, extremely high level, you understand that the customer experience cannot be transactional and has to be impactful. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to sustain that high level of performance for very long unless you prioritize <clears throat> the role of the care champ and prioritize the the customer experience. And similarly to how the creator doesn't lean on the marketing department, CareChamp adopts the same sort of principle when it comes to customer support. You have to pretend that customer support is non-existent. You are the customer support. You got to take those those late night phone calls, right, for your customers or just go above and beyond because what happens is when, when you have top performers in their respective space and, and they're trying to take it up to the next level, typically what they'll do is they'll try to find shortcuts and then they start to sacrifice on the, the quality of the customer experience and the results. It has a negative effect on the results, obviously. So, you know, you, you have to pretend that customer support doesn't exist 
and you are that support. So that's that's really the whole idea behind that, because in order for you to sustain a high level of performance, you have to embody all three roles, the creator, the closer and the care champ. So you mentioned that you sort of adopted this framework. Did that lead into writing a book? You know, a lot of my endeavors have revolved around providing the right information. You know, my background, right? You know what I come from. And, you know, again, just going back to what Eric Thomas said, you know, people aren't smart, they're exposed. So I feel I have an obligation to give people the right tools and resources and information in order to be successful. And, you know, for the last, since... Since my professional career, I got into leadership about, I don't know, eight months, eight months or so, somewhere around that mark into my wireless career. And since then, you know, when you go to train people, it's important to invest in yourself and continually learn and grow. And I've been documenting so much stuff my entire career. So when I sat down to actually write the book, I had all of the information like it was easy. I wrote the book in 29 days. So the content was there. It was just a matter of assembling it all together and, and making sure that it flowed well. But uh, yeah, I mean, it just came from a place of obligation, in my opinion. And and uh, again, I have three boys. One's 12, one's five, one's two and a half. And, and uh, you know, I want to give them the same information that I've been able to instill and learn from other people that's top performers in their space as well that I've been able to learn and grow from. I want to give them that all those years of experience. So when it comes time for them to transition into the workplace, they got all the tools, they got all the exposure, they have everything that they need in order to go out and win. The selfless nature of what led to this, it's emanating throughout this entire, even though it's born out of this intense exposure experience you leveraged it into multiple nations book and so i'm sure that one of the obstacles that people are facing right now and now let's get a bit specific like you know your audience right and i think that's probably what's led to a lot of your success how can people start to identify their audience their niche great question with testing a lot of just collecting as much data as you can i mean we have all the tools that we need in order to easily identify that, you know, you run, you spend a, you know, 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, whatever on Facebook, Instagram, you know, TikTok ads, whatever. And just learning from who's, who's receptive and who's not, I think that's, that's the, one of the key things to, to see who's resonating with, with your content, with your product or your service. I think it may be a bit difficult to distinguish, like what's the most actionable tip, but off the cuff, top of your mind, what's the best sales advice that you have to offer? You know, I've kind of already shared it with the success amnesia, just having that fierce kind of mindset, but bring some more value. I'd say it's a few things. Number one, get uncomfortable. When I first started out in my wireless career, I didn't have any, any corporate sales experience, right? And the guy that was training me, his personality, Personally, I'm an introvert. Like I'm happier talking to myself than when I am to other people a lot of times. But the guy that that trained me, polar opposite from me. He's the life of the party. 
super bubbly, personable, funny, very charismatic. And he was very successful in sales. And he was the guy that was training me in this kiosk when I first started out. And uh, one thing that I noticed is he did not care to talk to anyone. He would say something clever, right, to get their attention, make a joke, whatever the case may be. But he would engage with the bypassing traffic. Now, me, that just wasn't my personality. And I understood that as a weakness, right? But also understood it for a growth opportunity that if I'm going to make this work, I don't have any other option. So for me, I didn't have anyone to to push me off the cliff and say, hey, Cash, you got to get out here and engage with these people. It was a necessity for me, uh, but it put me in a very uncomfortable space that I needed to be in in order to really grow. So I would say the biggest thing is is simply it uncomfortable get into those uncomfortable spaces because, you know, that's where growth takes place. When you challenge those boundaries, those boundaries expand. Um, Two, I would say, you know, don't wing your sales pitch. Every top performer, they have a process or some form of structure. So write out your pitch, write out your objection handling and continually optimize it by adopting some of the best pieces that you observe and people that are just extraordinarily successful in that same space. And three, again, this goes back to just being fiercely relentless when it comes to mindset. So top three, I I would say those stand at the top. Something else that comes to mind and learning from you your content is this concept of the sales mindset shift. Can you talk to me a bit about what that is and how people can implement it? Explain. What do you you mean a a sales mindset mindset shift? So in going through your content, I've come to learn that there's different ways that people can go about selling their product, right? And you've outlined your framework. And correct me if I'm wrong, I do believe that in doing your website and other aspects of your content that you're helping people kind of come to this reality. Now, the way in which they can develop their skill set, hone their craft, is to shift their mindset. You've talked about relentlessness. You've talked about establishing your why. When it comes to the sales aspect, people start to kind of shift themselves into a space where they're capable of actually implementing all of the advice that you've offered here today. Great question. I think it goes back to their why. I mean, how bad do you want it? And you got to you got to find a way or you make a way. I mean, that's that's simply it. Despite the challenges, despite, you know, the adversity that you're going to face, despite the ups and downs that come in the sales world. I mean, you just you just got to ask yourself, how, how bad do you want it? Right. How bad do I really want it? And once once settle upon an answer there and you know that you're all in here. You just got to find a way or you make a way. That's it. Abandon any kind of excuses that you might have. Because the reality is, you know, there's an overabundance of excuses. If you're looking for an excuse, you're going to find it. I said the other day that, you know, some of the some of the most talented people and some of the greatest bodies of work have yet to be discovered because, you know, they got infected by either inaction or inconsistency. So number one, you simply got to show up and, and start taking action and abandon any kind of excuses. It seems like you've learned a lot over the course of your career. But let's say 
that the dream version of yourself 10 years from now is in that ideal spot? What do you think he would say to you in order to get there? Man, just continue to get better. I don't think you got to have it all figured out today. Continually improve, continually get more efficient, continually get more effective, continue to, to add more value. When you focus on those, the results will follow. Where can people find you? Uh, everywhere. Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, all at Cash Hasworth. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Mr. Cash Hasworth, the author of Selling Keeps You Broke. Don't forget to pick up a copy of the book. Reach out to Cash. I'm sure he has plenty more advice for all this came from. Thank you for your time today, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, Jonathan tuning into this episode of inside the inspired if there's a topic that you want me to talk about please don't hesitate to reach out you can follow me on instagram at inside the inspired or on linkedin jonathan z cohen i'd love to hear from you the show is growing i see the audience picking up and fills me in levels in ways that i'm going to continue to express by bringing on top tier guests and people that i believe give you a bit of meaning enlightenment and wisdom that you wouldn't get otherwise. So that's all for this one. And until next time, stay safe, stay strong, stay mindful.